long, long time ago. You gave me a postcard, Bob, and it said, education has so much to learn. And I, I hung that up in my classroom. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Dave. Thanks for joining Bob and I for our podcast, Thriving in Dystopia. And even though we always try and be professionals, sometimes we swear. So just know that going in. We are circling, circling together. We are singing, singing our heart song. Hey, Bob. (laughs) Hey, that was was a good one. I remember that song. Oh, good. Sometimes you just got to circle up and um, just get it, get it going. How you doing today, Bobo? Good, Dave. Um, thanks for picking me to do the podcast with this week. I know you have a lovely selection and I always like to be picked. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I looked at all my other siblings and said, we'll go with Bob this week. Yes. You hear that, boys? <laughs> Sweet. Yeah. Today we are recording after hours for the first time. I kind of feel like it's a a little bit of a a special occasion. Yeah. This might be the new normal. Things are shifting right now. Yeah. Partially because I've gone back to work and it's not too far behind. You're going to be going back to work. Yeah, that's right. We are. And that's a lot. You know, um, I wanted to ask you about something. I feel like we're in this period where people um, either are, they're they're having a hard time responding. I don't know. Is this happening in your life? Like friends, family, coworkers are either not responding to texts or emails or taking a long time. And it's happening like in every area of my life. So I feel like something bigger is going on. Is that anything that's happening for you? Um, a little bit. Yeah. I, I definitely feel like there is like a, I don't know. I guess I feel like we're in like six months, right? We're about six months into COVID and where everything has moved online to like these online platforms where every like hangout session, work session is all either on zoom or some other, um, video conferencing type format. And, you know, I, We've gotten so many emails. We've watched all of our YouTube. And I feel like at a certain point, I feel like we're kind of starting, maybe we're starting to check out as a culture a little bit. Yeah. Or just burnout. Burnout. Yeah. Yeah. Which, man, I feel like everything we're talking about is like hitting a little bit on um, this, the the two-part series that we're about to embark on. But yeah, yeah. teacher burnout is such a big thing. And circles are all about restorative justice and yeah us going back to work is like this time where we're going back into the classroom in some way shape or form a little bit you know yeah absolutely we're we're touching on a lot of the the themes of the show already yeah i i think there is a collective burnout of phones computers because so much of our world is we're now online versions of ourselves and that's really hard i I have this personal goal that's called Inbox Zero. I call it IBZ. It's like this unrealistic goal that I can get to all my emails, respond to all of them, and then I can have that like breath 
for maybe a few minutes before I get my next email where I can actually like feel that like sweet relief of IBZ, that <laughs> inbox zero. But gosh, I haven't had an inbox zero since the pandemic started. And that was like one of my big goals before going back to school and work and all that. But it is not going to happen. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, I think it's just this bigger thing that's happening and it's important to be compassionate on ourselves for, you know, if someone doesn't respond back, it's not taking it personally, or if you can't get to IBZ, you know, that's fine, you know? Well, thanks, Dave. I think maybe we can launch into our topic for the day and it's a two-part episode on education and themes in education. You're an educator. I'm an educator. Um, so I think we have a fair amount to say on this. And today, our first topic is actually something that I think extends quite a bit further than education, but has home in education too. And it's restorative justice and transformative justice. And I think we're going to start with you giving us a story. You use it, I think, at your school. And I'm curious about how that came to be. How did you get introduced to it? And then what what it looks like for you. So I wonder if you could start us off, Dave. Yeah. Well, I first ran into restorative justice through conversations with you back in like the 2010s and sort of thinking about the um, judicial system in the United States and how it all relates to this prison industrial complex and putting people in jail and all that. And a great film came out that really kind of changed like everything for me about the prison industrial complex. Do you know the name of that film, Bob? I think it's 13th. No. Good try. It is The House They Built. Oh, that was a great one, too. And yeah, I had yeah. forgotten about that one. Um, and that's probably not even the name of the movie. <laughs> uh, we'll have to look it up. Is it? Here, let me just call it to Julie real quick, okay? Well, you know, sometimes you just got to call to Julie every now and then, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's good stuff. <laughs> She'll get us going. But um, yeah, so that kind of like opened my eyes to being like, we need to like rethink about uh, restorative justice. Oh, she's here. Yeah, Julie, what's it called? The house they built. Is that what it's called? Gosh, sorry. This is just podcasting gold at this point. All right. Oh yeah. <laughs> Let's move on with it. Um, love it. Um, got turned on to it through that, and then it started popping up a lot when you. S- it penetrates a lot into elementary education. And I started seeing like workshops for restorative justice. And I just felt like I wanted to investigate it a little bit more and decide for my, like, just sort of see how it's coming into the classrooms, how we're like dealing with behavior management in these new ways. Because I think deep down inside me, I, I feel like I knew that it need to start at a young age, like how we're, how we're talking about behavior management, how we're labeling kids and how we're like pushing them through the school system, um, into like they, they often talk about the school to prison pipeline. And that's another like buzzword and how we can fix that, how we can take steps to fix that. Because although at the time and when I was working in Vermont, it wasn't like a big issue because Vermont like working at a private school in Vermont is not necessarily where you're seeing the school to prison pipeline, but yeah, it all over the country, this is happening. And 
so I just felt like I needed to get educated and I needed to like find some, like a, some new and innovative ideas that I could use in my classroom to sort of do the work that I felt most called to be doing, which is social emotional learning and basically having those super simple, but super complex conversations with kids. And yeah, I just started reading books on restorative justice. I went to a few workshops and yeah, at the school I work at now, I'm kind of the restorative justice guy, but um, there is so much great education happening at my school. And I feel like it is like the conversations we have about behavior management and how to like have these hard conversations about kids that are carrying so much trauma with them has been like the best part of my job. And yeah. And I guess I, that's kind of why we wanted to bring this all here, but right. yeah, really we we can go all the way back to, to you, Bob. And the first time you ever like sort of opened my eyes to restorative justice and wow. I'm, I'm no super idea. curious to hear to hear more about that from you, you know? Yeah. And I will get into that a little bit later in the show. I had no idea that I was a part of your start. I, you said a lot of interesting things there. And before we zoom out into a little bit of the history on restorative justice, I'd be interested to keep on going on that thread that you've brought it to your school. And I'm curious about what it's meant to do in the school. So you talked a little bit about behavior modification, um, like in bringing restorative justice to schools, like your school and maybe others, why do it? And what are the goals that educators might want to get from using restorative justice? Okay. Yeah, for sure. Um, there is... I guess the biggest goal of restorative justice in the classroom, and we can also talk a little bit more, zoom out a little bit more. It's not just restorative justice when you're using it in schools, but it's restorative practices. Mm -hmm. And that is not just, so justice kind of has this connotation of talking about after an aggression has happened or something has gone wrong and using justice to a restorative justice model to fix that specific behavior but restorative practices are kind of all the practices that go into creating a a classroom that is interacting with kids to make them the best humans that they can be and so that it, it incorporates a lot of like preventative um measures and some of those things can be Simply like teaching meditation or teaching um, mindfulness to kids. That's like a a pretty classic and catchy and um, popular practice that's happening right now in schools is teaching mindfulness. And it has varying degrees of success, of course, but um, basically like anything, if the educator believes in what they're teaching, it's going to go over well. And yeah, so if mindfulness is really like, practice and it's something that can be taught well and um so yeah you were can you rephrase the question one more time there bob yeah sure um interested in 
why educators would bring restorative justice or restorative practices to schools? What do they want to get out of it? So I guess a, a little bit that we could talk about is the idea that there's a pretty common idea. If you think back to your education growing up, you as the listener, you probably have this idea that like teachers, there was like a lot of labeling. And if there's a a bad, a quote unquote, bad kid or a kid that was like a problem child, that was the kid's fault. Right. And I think what restorative justice is trying to do is taking that label away and rather than labeling these like the when a a problem behavior occurs in a school or with a kid rather than labeling them as the issue what what we are seeking to do is trying to label that as a deficiency gap so they don't have the skills to deal with with whatever happened they don't have the they haven't been taught the skills so and that goes a little bit along with the social emotional learning and so an example could be um, let's just use you as the example. You took a pen from, uh, let's just use a, cl- a random name like Nick. You took the pen from Nick and Nick blew up. He, he got so upset at the fact that you took his pen that he punched you in the face. And what the classic example, what we're looking at there when Nick punches you in the face is like, oh, like, oh no, like Nick, you can't be hitting Bob in the face. That's like, you got to go see the principal. Like that is not okay. But really we got to look at all the skills that Nick needs to display to, to take that moment of Bob stealing his pen and look at them in a way that we look at any other type of learning. Right. So Nick needs to like be able to have this like high like frontal cortex what's called like the wizard mind he needs to have this like high level of thinking where he's able to process and be like okay what is going to happen if i um rail back and hit bob in the face what's going to happen when i freak out and yell in front of the whole class um is this really a big deal and can i like check my behavior is this something that's been happening a lot is what Bob's done here an issue that I'm going to come across again and again. And there are the, so these are all these skills that need to be taught to Nick before he sits back and rails on Bob. Right. And if you look at another example, like a, a math problem, we clearly define these skills. For instance, like if you want to solve, you know, if there's three penguins on an iceberg and there's seven penguins on another iceberg, how many total penguins are there? And we as educators, we label all the things that you need to have. You need to have like literacy skills. You need to be able to have um, the idea of what what addition is in that problem. You need to understand that what a transition word is and how they're connecting and how um, like the list could go on and like all these skills are very clearly defined. And we as educators don't define the skill gap that's happening within, within a student when he has a behavior issue. And what I guess that's a really long winded answer to answer your question, Bob, but that that is what restorative justice is trying to do and restorative practices. It's to take that skill gap that we're seeing that some kids are able to like see Bob take their pencil and just be like, Hey Bob, can I get my pencil back? Which seems like a pretty easy thing to do, but 
we're trying to take that skill gap and find the kids that don't have that social emotional learning to get them up to speed and to have them operating in a classroom where they're able to be there. Does that, does that make sense to you? Yeah, I think it does. Yeah. Um, sounds like restorative justice, restorative practices are about, at least in the examples you gave around developing metacognition or thinking about what's happening in a situation before reacting to the situation. And is this something that you've put into practice in your classrooms? Oh, yeah. One of the main tools of restorative practices within the classroom are is this the tool of circles and circling can can be seen in a very various different ways. But um, my two main circles that I deal with. Okay, my four main circles that I deal with are the morning circle, which is the check in circle. And this is a way for us as a classroom to come together and talk about what what is happening in our life in a fun way, but also in a can be deeper. So these are like when we circle up, we have questions or I'll ask a question to the class and they're able to answer it as they see fit. And like a question could be a fun one. Like if you were, would you rather be a dragon or own a dragon or what's your favorite type of ice cream? But it could be a little bit deeper. Um, like tell me, about dinner last night and that could open up some bigger questions or when you see someone that you want to be friends with how would you approach them and these are just like opening questions that kind of open up the day but get us to come together and create culture and community within the classroom and then i also run a lot of circles that are called play circles which are um game based and we use games to build teamwork um, within the classroom and these circles are also have a lot of buy-in for the kids to come to circles when they're a little bit more serious. So another circle that I like to run is called a peacekeeper circle and peacekeeper circles are very specifically designed to, um, give every kid a chance to talk about their deeper feelings and, it's a way for us to bring up issues that we're having with others within the classroom. And it's also gives a platform for them to talk with each other. Um, and then the final circle I run is what's called a restorative justice circle. And this is a circle that is a response to uh, something, an issue that's happened that has prevented um, the class from learning. So that is a circle that can happen at any time. If there is a bigger issue that's happening within a classroom and it can just be like if two kids are having an issue, it could just be me and the two kids. But if it's a whole classroom issue that's been happening, it's an ongoing issue, then the whole class, I'll stop the whole class and we'll talk about, um, yeah, we'll just do a restorative justice circle, which is a very specific design as well, where you ask six questions to to the person that's been harmed and six questions to the person that's done the harming. Mm -hmm. And you can definitely look those questions up online. So, yeah, I mean, another thing about circles is if you can see they're trying, one of the 
things that they're building is they're building active listening skills. They're building empathy, which is one of the hugest things to talk about with restorative justice in the classroom. And more than anything, it is just this way for a classroom to create a community and a climate of respect and to have a place where you can feel heard and feel safe. And there are definitely like a lot of guidelines that you need to think about when you're running circles. And I'm not going to go too deep into that, but um, yeah, those that's kind of like the basics of how restorative justice gets implemented in my classroom. That's great. Um, It's very interesting. And I want to ask you if you have anything else about the practice of restorative justice that you want to bring in before I talk a little bit about the history and one of the critiques of restorative justice. Yeah, that sounds great, Bob. Uh, I guess the final thing I want to bring up is that this is something that is a tool that I like to think about with kids, but it's really a tool that anyone can think about with other people. And there's this idea of this threshold, right? And if we go back to that pencil example from earlier, um, Nick was definitely at a high threshold, right? And there's a lot of influences for that, where, why Nick might have been closer to that threshold. And it could have been stuff he's carrying with him from home. It could have been things that happened at recess, or it could have been just a lot of underlying causes that we, um, that we don't really know about. And Nick is much closer to that like eruption point. And oftentimes as an educator, I think about when I talk with kids after an eruption, I, I like to use the analogy of the volcano. It can be a powerful image because it's something that we can all relate to. And to help keep that volcano from erupting, we need to think about the tools that we can give the kid. We need to think about those tools that we can help them with And that's sort of the skill gap that I was talking about earlier, but we need to take a second and be like, what are, what does this kid need? And a lot of those tools are simple tools. Like, um, like we're talking about with restorative practices, like mindfulness and breathing techniques and social emotional learning and having just like a toolkit that they can use in these harder situations. Because when we're talking about anybody, we don't know when they're like closer to that threshold. And it's an important idea for us to have that empathy, but it's also important for the person that's almost about to burst to know that they're almost about to burst. And that's kind of one of those things if we can name those emotions for kids or really for adults, if we can name those emotions and see those and help them name it for themselves and these kids are going to have a lot more of those tools in their toolbox to deal with these situations. And then a situation that doesn't need to escalate or in a volcano that doesn't need to erupt can just go on, go on chilling like a mountain, you know? And I think that's the last point that I really wanted to bring up with restorative justice in the classroom is that idea of that threshold. Nice. Cool. Well, I'll talk about putting this in a larger context and then bring in a a sort of another perspective on all of this. I'm no expert, but in doing a little bit of research and reading about restorative justice and transformative justice, it's clear that restorative justice has been around for a little while now, since at least the 1970s in wider 
practice and emergence of it is what you alluded to, Dave, um, trying to develop a different model of justice than punitive justice, the one that the criminal justice system is based on, the punishment model. And instead thinking about basically looking at punishment and saying, oh, wow, punishment doesn't work very well. The person doesn't really change. It actually doesn't deter this harm from happening. And it can really hurt the the whole community, uh, that form of punishment. And so a lot of restorative justice, the early stuff was developed by um, domestic violence advocates and especially communities of color who were seeing this contradiction of um, men who were abusive, but then also when those men were punished in the criminal justice system, they were receiving really brutal punishments, and that wasn't actually helping the community. Um, so trying to develop a different model, you know, and restorative justice has roots in like a lot of non-Western practices, so it's a lot older than all of this. Um, this restorative justice as you described it, Dave, was developed in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and beyond. And part of sort of why there's also a critique of restorative justice is that it was, oddly enough, something that the criminal justice system tried to bring into its mode. So it saw what was happening in communities, and it also developed its own models of restorative justice. So something that happens at UC Santa Cruz is that there is a restorative justice practice that the university maintains, but it it does so in this way that ends up punishing students um, and in a way that it gets to be the arbiter of what counts as restorative justice. So in the 1990s or so, activists were seeing this and they were also seeing how it had evolved in a way where restorative justice was trying to restore things to how things were right before the harm happened. And it didn't look enough into, well, actually, what was happening right beforehand wasn't really very good. It was still filled with a lot of issues and a lot of power dynamics that were toxic. So they started. Maybe, maybe we were. Uh- in that situation, we're a lot closer to that threshold, huh? Yeah. Meaning like trying to go back to a, a volcano that's about to explode is not necessarily where we want to go back to, right? That's right. And maybe looking at why a lot of times what was happening is and what happens in situations is this chronic abuse of power by people who have more power. And so like in that situation, Nick might be the non-power holder and um, that Nick is constantly being put into positions of marginality. And that wasn't being looked at enough. The, the context, especially in regards to power. So activists wanted to look at that. They thought that was super important that we have to look at what are the systems that are putting people in these places. And so that is a critique that developed this sort of um, 
in some ways it does look like restorative justice because it does have some things around like circles and it does have thinking around harms, but it's, it's called transformative justice because it also aims to transform the conditions that got people there in the first place, especially with an attention to power, which also helps to prevent it from being taken up by the state and the criminal justice system and institutions in ways because it's critiquing those systems as well. And it, it keeps it at a very, you know, bottom up practice. Mm. So yeah, that, um, yeah, that, that, that brings in transformative justice, but I don't think, I, I, I think everything you said still is very relevant. I love the circles. And so I'm interested in talking with you about how to create something that is like a combination of like what you're doing with a transformative justice lens. Yeah. I think that that is a really important aspect that what really speaks to me with what you said is that idea of kind of what, what it brings up for me is the idea of power versus empowering, right? Are we trying to use restorative justice to maintain the power systems of the classroom? Or are we trying to use restorative justice to empower the students within the classroom? And I feel like that's where I want to be. That's, yeah. that's where I'm striving to go to. But to get there, you also, as an educator, need to give up. You need to, inherently, you need to give up the power within the classroom. And I feel like another... Another idea that resonates with me is this idea of coyote teaching and coyote teaching can be, um, this idea of sort of teaching without, without a student or a pupil knowing that they're being taught. Mm. And I feel like that is well, I mean, there's some problematic things there, but, um, yeah, I feel like how do we give up the power in the classroom to empower the students? And that's a question that I'm going to try and be delving into as much as I can this year. That is actually on my one of my five goals in my year to sort of like my five themes of the year, which is something I like to do at the start of the year. Um, one of them is empowerment by giving up power is what I have underlined. So, yeah, and I feel like that kind of goes along with you can't re run restorative justice effectively without being willing to give up the power without being willing to give the power to the kids. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. And it's, it sounds scary and I think it doesn't necessarily have to be like, I don't think students are tip in my experience, students aren't typically ready just to take the power and run with it and expel the teacher or anything like that. I think students, at least at the university level, really want a teacher there in some sense. And actually they really want, they seem to really want it. And uh, by the university level, they're, they're, they're socialized in a way to really expect the teacher to do a lot or the instructor. And so when I've tried to just give them the power all at once, it doesn't usually work. So I think that, I, and I'm curious to hear if you think the elementary school students would take it up in ways which would lead to chaos or something like that. 
but I wonder if, you know, empowerment is, I think people are, you know, like we're taught in schools to not use critical thinking and to, to think about power. So part of that is just like maybe having circles where an analysis of power happens uh, with the students, like where, where is power in the classroom? Who has power and in what ways? I mean, it de- definitely depends on the grade level, right? Especially at elementary school, there's like such a marked difference between a kindergartner and a fifth grader that mm-hmm. it's it's hard to it's it's interesting that they're in the same building because they couldn't it it would be almost impossible to have them in the same classroom, right? Like a fifth grader is double the age of a kindergartner. That like says something right there, you know. The next time, uh, like a fifth grader would be doubled, they'd be in college, right? So there's a lot more learning that happens. Um, But yeah, there is, it it definitely, I think, would be chaos if you just like handed the reins over. But I think from that chaos, there could be uh, a real gift in what could be learned from that. But really, you can do it in a safe way too, right? I think a lot about these circles, as like a teacher, there's like this idea of keeping a student in this this bubble that's called the safety bubble, and that's where they feel their best, and that's where they're not. But it's not where they do their best learning, right? They they're comfortable and safe and all that, but you need to push them into the next zone, which is the growth zone. And this is the zone where you're pushing the students, but they're still like, you know, they're still grounded. They're not. They're still like grounded in the fact that they know that they're like in, they're pushing themselves and they're scared, but it's not into the danger zone where there's like no safety net and it's like a zone of failure. And so, like, finding that as an educator, how can we get our students into that empowerment zone where they're, they're in this growth zone while slowly giving up the reins to empower students to take education into their own hands and to take pride in the work they're doing and to build that resiliency that I I think we all need and especially like in t- times right now but there's like never a time that a teacher sees a kid that has this resiliency and is like yeah that's not not the most important thing it's like every time you see a resilient kid it's like yeah that that kid is like going to be okay, you know? And those are, those are those moments, um, those growth moments that we need to like push the kids into without letting go of them. Yeah. That reminds me of education around privilege. And for those who have privilege in a setting, the what's called pedagogy of discomfort is important. Meaning, that there needs to be teaching and learning that those people who have privilege are uncomfortable and they like sit in that discomfort and not get defensive, but rather try to listen. So this, you know, of course happens around race, but also gender um, and ability and any power vector. So I think that is also a crucial aspect of transformative justice where restorative justice doesn't really necessarily talk about these type of 
axes of power, race, class, gender, ability, etc. But transformative justice is very attentive to it and almost encouraging, you know, for example, students of color to be in the center and be talking about the harms of racism and white supremacy while the white students listen and be uncomfortable. And so I think that's an important intervention into the restorative justice literature. Yeah, Bob, I like, I like all this that has gotten brought up tonight. I'm curious if this has felt like a transformative conversation for you. Um, it feels not necessarily transformative, but I'm so, what I'm interested in is like you're doing restorative circles and restorative practices. And I think those are so good. And I think what transformative justice can do is use those things and sort of like repurpose them, like take the best of restorative justice and sort of just take it from a transformative lens. I think the practices of restorative justice are often quite good, um, but it's kind of just complicating them with this, this deeper analysis. So that's what I like about this conversation. Yeah. Yeah, I like all the the toolboxes and all the ideas. And I feel like in general, I just feel like there's a lot of hope in education, right? I feel like this is where there's so much good work being done. <laughs> you know, this is like the work of our of our generation is like to like push the education into the next level. I feel like a long, long time ago, you gave me a postcard, Bob, and it said, education has so much to learn. And I, I hung that up in my classroom, my first right. ever classroom. And I really thought that like we, we need to find ways as educators to like take the education model and transform it and find those new toolboxes. And, you know, over the, the next five years, I've met some of the most amazing people in my life that are educating um, on the high school, the middle school, the college and the elementary school level. And you know what? Even um, preschool level, there are like so many amazing things happening. And yeah, I just love that we can push it there. And I want to keep, keep that getting pushed because we need that and we need it right now in the classroom more than ever, you know? Yeah, absolutely. A lot of times when people talk about things that need to change in society, the conversation often ends up at this place of, well, I guess it starts with education. I think we need to educate differently about that. So that's what I hear you saying when, you know, now we have this chance, there's really important work to do in education. Mm, I think that's a yeah. pretty good place to leave it because next week we want to go into so how is all this showing up in times of COVID? What do classrooms look like? For example, what do circles look like where you are and, and then in other places? So as teachers and instructors are going back to classrooms, what is that looking like? And that's a really, I think, in a really important moment in the global, like what is happening in society, I think, as classrooms are coming school is coming back together that is a turning point it will be a turning point moment i think in this like pandemic yeah yeah 
can I ask you a quick question? What, yeah. when are you going back to school, Bob? When do you, you start up classes? Yeah, I'm in on the quarter system. And so we start very late about the end of September. So I'm still just working on my, my syllabuses. It's, it's all up in my head right now. So I'm very curious about those who are actually in classrooms right now. You working on your syllabi or are you working on your tan, Bob? I actually need to say that the word syllabus is a Greek word, so it doesn't pluralize. <laughs> okay. <in the eye>. <laughs> so, <laughs> and actually, my tan's, my tan's doing quite well right now, <laughs> surprisingly well in the, in the fog of seaside. Love it, Bob. Yeah. Uh, great. Well, I do want to say that the movie is called The House I Live In. And, we got you it. know, it took, it took a whole it. podcast, but we got there. That is the name of the movie that changed my mind on the prison industrial complex or opened my eyes to it. Uh, anyhow, what, what we need to do as we talk about all those good things that we've seen and watched and heard is go to the tuned in section, Bob. What are you tuned yeah. into? Yeah, let's do it. Well, it's just super relevant in a funny kind of way. It's because it's a high school movie. The genre of coming of age at the end of high school. And the movie is called Booksmart. It came out in 2019. Have you seen that movie, Dave? Oh, yeah. I love Booksmart. That is, that, that was, it bummed. It was one of my top five favorite films of the year 2019. That's right. I remember that list. Yeah. Or no, well, sorry, top five of the last five. Yeah. I want to hear from you on that movie, but I thought it was, the best movie in that genre, you know, the genre of American Pie, Can't Hardly Wait, um, Super Bad, you know, yep. and they, it was actually like a feminist movie in that genre, and it, it was so good. Yeah, I, I would call it the buddy film, but I'd call it the high school buddy film is the genre yeah. you're talking about. Yeah. And yeah, it blows all those other movies out of the water. It's so good. Yeah, yeah. just watch that today, actually, Dave, and like, wow, this is a good one. I hope, I hope Dave's seen this. Oh yeah, 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 love it, Bob. Well, I'm also going to share a movie. I watched a movie this last week, and one of my all-time favorite movies is a classic called Groundhog Day, and. The movie I'm sharing is not the best movie, but it's a movie called Palm Springs. Mm. Have you heard of this one? I've seen it. It's on Hulu, but I haven't yeah, watched it's on, it. It's on Hulu, and it is an Andy Sandberg movie, and he is stuck in an infinite time loop, uh, much like Bill Murray was stuck in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. Andy Sandberg is stuck in Palm Springs at a wedding, and... It is just so much fun to watch. I just, I feel like I could watch people relive the same day over and over again for the rest of my life, you know? <laughs> oh, that's great. That's, that's MC Escher-like. Yeah. <laughs> I'm stuck in a time loop watching a movie about people stuck in a time loop. There you go. And, and that's your heaven. That's your heaven, yeah. Dave. Yeah. <laughs> oh, probably not. But uh, it's a, yeah, it's a fun movie. It's definitely watchable. and. It, it does live up to this idea of just like the the dog days of summer, which I'm all about right now. Just trying to hang on to that summer feeling as long as we can, you know? You're you got one finger on the cliff, you know? Until you 
you have to fall in. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That is the end of the summer. Well, Bob, um, I'll share out our social media coordinates real quick. You can get us at DavePeachtree at gmail.com. You can get us at at bmaze19 at Twitter and thriving underscore in underscore dystopia on Instagram. Dave, go into those classrooms, make us proud and report on the other side of it next week, would you? Yeah. The courage. That's what we need. Love you, Bob. to you, Dave. Hey, what's up, y'all? Bob and I just want to take that second and thank you all for those years that you keep on lending us. It seriously means the world to us and we couldn't and we wouldn't be doing this without you. So thanks so much. We also want to thank the artists for making our podcast a little bit more beautiful. The intro song is In Heaven by Drake Stafford. And our new outro song is called The Time for Action by Kennedy. And as always, the prolific and enigmatic Joe Shine did our thumbnail art. Well, we'll see you next Tuesday, and I hope you have a wonderful week. Action, 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 action. Lisa y sanamente, la cruda y fea verdad la vivimos en el presente Tirados sin piedad y perdidos entre la gente En esta realidad esperando pacientemente El cambio ya se siente, te mienten Los que dicen ver una grieta Presentan argumentos sin evidencia concreta Hacen de todo un cuento para que se ríe al de al lado Un mensaje para ellos, números están superados Tantos de mi clase que no tienen dónde ir Sin nadie que los ampare ni razón para existir Odiándose entre ellos al no poder recurrir A un sistema que los mata y solamente quiere huir Se niega a abrir los ojos a ver tantas injusticias La calle es color rojo y nunca salen las noticias Manipulan a su antojo, nos dejan en la inmundicia Pero ahora su despojo va a ser la única primicia